is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Yes, good afternoon. Michelle Stanley with you for the next hour. Coming up, I wonder whether you've faced issues with repairing your farm machinery. The right to repair, it's topic of much debate, but in the US there's been a development. Farmers there now do have the right to repair their John Deere's. So what does that mean for Australia? It's very frustrating. It's something that the National Farmers Federation and our members in every state and a commodity group have been calling for now for a number of years. We really believe that it puts farmers at a complete disadvantage. You'll hear more on that before one o'clock. Also today, I wonder if you've had this experience. You've been to the supermarket, you grabbed your groceries, bought plenty of NT melons for the fruit bowl, only to have a watermelon explode. If this has happened to you, let me know. 0487 1057. It happened to an Aussie customer very recently. A bit later on, you'll hear what might have caused it. There's a number of conditional factors. There's a number of age factors, how it's been handled, whether it's been bumped. Exploding melons coming up before 1.30. If that has happened to you, if you have bought a melon, a watermelon in particular, and it's exploded, get in touch. 0487 First up today, though, the ABC can reveal that large areas of the northern of Northern Territory land have been cleared without a permit to make way for cotton. Satellite images of farms in both the Daly and the Barclay region were cleared prior to receiving approval, raising questions about regulation by the NT government. Roxanne Fitzgerald has this report. One of the last untouched tropical savannas and unimpacted river networks in the world is quickly becoming known as prime cotton-growing country. Wagaman woman Daphne Huddlestone, a traditional owner and arranger, has guarded the stone country that stretches around Pine Creek for decades. It was in July 2021, Daphne recalls, when her team of rangers trundled almost 100 kilometres down a dirt road towards the Daly River and were stopped in their tracks. Mere metres from the river's edge, Many hundreds of hectares of trees had been ripped from the ground. As we kept on coming past here, we just looked at it. They kept on knocking it, kept on knocking it. My heart broken that there was tree here once upon a time and now it's all gone. Deep in the Northern Territory outback, stations some double the land size of London, are being bought for millions and converted at a rapid rate to make way for a lucrative industry, cotton. Paul Burke, the chief executive of the NT Farmers Association, has been spearheading the expansion of the industry in the north. He says it's a silver bullet crop that could rocket to a $200 million economy within the decade, helping small family farmers diversify from the cattle status quo, which has driven the territory up until now. The flow-on effects to the port, the flow-on effects for road infrastructure will be significant, and I think all Territorians will benefit from those larger infrastructure investments that are being driven by by cropping. We've had investment from people coming from the southern states that are more traditionally known for cotton growing because of the results we've got. Right now, there are a few crops that are better bang for your buck. With the rise of fast fashion, cotton prices have gone gangbusters. It's a global commodity and a full-size module sells for around $5,000. Cotton is traditionally a very thirsty crop, 
But one major difference between the Northern Territory and the Southern States lies in the unique climate. Annually, monsoonal rains drench the land and top up the rivers. It's this weather event the industry is counting on to set them apart. Paul says he doesn't think cotton is going to be the massive water user that people talk about. The, the production system we use here in the Northern Territory um, is predominantly a rain-fed system where we don't use any irrigation water, and that's proven very successful. But not everyone is as optimistic about cotton's expansion in the Territory. Mike Harding, a pastoralist from Gorry Station, is worried about how much water will be used, as well as what will be left of the landscape for future generations. Having seen the Murray Darling, which is always a, a bugbear of mine and, and a heart-wrenching thing, I see it as another part of what could be a perfect storm. I'm not against clearing and, and, and progressing our, our agricultural industry in a dry land way, but, but yeah, the, um, the old just rip it down and um, you know, you'd rather plead forgiveness than ask permission. The whole show at the moment just does stink of just turning a blind eye to generate some income to governments that just can't pay for what they're doing. Now, satellite imagery shared with the ABC shows what appears to be land clearing without a permit, which is generally against the law. Two stations are being investigated by the Northern Territory government. The NT government's environment department says its regulations are strong and proponents of the industry maintain the rules are being upheld. But environmental groups say this alleged unlawful activity speaks of a culture of cowboy antics in a jurisdiction with limited environmental oversight and a piecemeal set of laws. In March last year, the NT government slashed approval times for land clearing permits from six months to six weeks. And at that point, we really knew that we needed to start scrutinising very closely what was going to happen in the Territory with land clearing. That was Kirsty Howie the director of the Environment Centre NT. We received a tip-off from the Wagaman Rangers, who are also traditional owners of that country, who let us know that they'd observed a lot of trees felled very, very close to the Daly River. Further investigation using satellite images showed that land had been cleared without a permit between July and September 2021. On September 23, a permit was issued to Clarivelle for part of the property, even though the land had already been cleared. After multiple complaints from the Environment Centre, the NT government launched an investigation into the remaining land clearing, which spans almost 200 hectares. The owners of Clarivelle Farm did not respond to the ABC's inquiries or request for an interview. In a separate, remote part of the Northern Territory lies a massive cattle station on the Barclay Tablelands called Eucronage Station. It was reportedly bought by pastoralist Malcolm Harris in 2019 for $30 million. In November 2021, satellite images revealed almost 5,000 hectares had been burned and ploughed before the regulator's assessment was complete. In the NT, a permit is required for clearing more than one hectare of land. During this investigation, the ABC obtained a letter to the station from the Pastoral Land Board stating... The board considers the applicant and pastoral lessee's actions show disregard to the pastoral land clearing application process and it is extremely disappointing that actions were taken to prepare land for clearing before the finalisation of the assessment process. The station did not receive any fines or sanctions. In December 2021, they were granted a permit. The ABC made multiple attempts to reach the owners of Eucronage Station but did not receive a response. 
Tawu Station, where a cotton gin is being built, is also being investigated by the Department of Environment in relation to unlawful land clearing. The ABC was unable to identify the owner or operator of the station, and a representative declined a request to be interviewed. Paul Burke says the NT Farmers Association has been at the forefront of pushing for robust regulations and that the industry as a whole is playing by the rules. My understanding is they're in process of resolution and and there may not be a case to answer for. So I think that may be a little bit disingenuous and and just trying to put some barriers up in front of industry that may not exist. Bruce Connolly, president of the Northern Cotton Growers Association, says he does not condone illegal land clearing and has doubts over the allegations. The Northern Territory government has a rigorous process to go through for achieving a land clearing permit. And whilst it's not easy, it's very appropriate. And um, I don't think anybody will be trying to do any illegal clearing. That's simple. I don't think they are. Kirsty Howie from the Environment Centre says a number of complaints from her office to the government pointing out suspected unlawful land clearing have been ignored. She claims permits are being rubber stamped and retrospectively handed out by the decision-making bodies who were essentially turning a blind eye. To be pursuing the same kind of development that has destroyed the Murray-Darling Basin here in the Northern Territory is beyond belief, but our government is so uh, keen to see development here that we're seeing this industry being pursued without appropriate parameters in place to ensure that it can occur sustainably. We actually are the only jurisdiction in Australia without native vegetation laws. We're the only jurisdiction without a biodiversity conservation strategy and we also don't have state of the environment reporting. Our tropical savannas are the second most intensely collapsing ecosystem after the Great Barrier Reef. We have the highest rate of mammal extinction in the world and Things are looking pretty shaky for the nature of the Northern Territory right now. A spokeswoman from the NT Department of Environment says all land clearing applications are assessed by an expert advisory panel and that as of March 2022, the Pastoral Land Board had powers to enforce breaches of land clearing approvals. Local traditional owners and farmers who rely on the land are urging the government to get the balance right. Jeremy Trembath, a farmer from Catherine and a new father, says he holds deep fears for the future. I'm not really a fan of land, well, I'm not a fan of land clearing. Um, When you take, say, the Amazon burning, we're all happy to sign petitions and get on Facebook about that, and we've got D10 dozers running over our native savannah landscapes here. You know, 30 years down the track, I don't want my son to look at me and say, could you have done more, Dad? Jeremy Trembath is a farmer from near Catherine, ending that report by Roxanne Fitzgerald. 19 to 1, the Northern Territory's Minister for Environment declined an interview on the topic. The NT Department of Environment said it could not comment on Tawu and Claraval stations as they're currently being investigated. And following this story, Federal Greens Senator Sarah Hanson-Young has called on the Federal Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek to hold an inquiry into land clearing in the NT. We need a federal investigation into what's going on in the NT because these beautiful savannah uh, areas are unique not just to Australia but to the entire world. They're important not just for Northern Territorians but for all Australians. This is about protecting our environment. 
We've let industry for far too long trash our beautiful forests, our beautiful parts of nature without uh, a thought of what happens next. It is now time in 2023 to have proper environmental regulation, laws that protect nature and laws that are enforced to hold those accountable when they do the wrong thing. Acting Chief Minister Nicole Madison was asked about that call on ABC Radio Darwin this morning. This was her reply. I don't think the views of a Green Senator from down south are really relevant here. Uh, What I would say to the Senator is that uh, have a look at the Northern Territory here. That less than 1% of land is cleared here. Uh, The cotton industry, and this is modern cotton, Adam, this is the cotton that is mostly uh, rain-fed as opposed to irrigated, uh, uses very little pesticides and chemicals, so it's not the old cotton of the past or the Murray-Darling story, uh, that we have got an emerging industry here and we do regulate it. We do regulate this industry and make sure that uh, we're keeping an eye on the growth and that it is done sustainably and responsibly. Mm, I would say what's relevant is a complete lack of oversight from the regulator in land being cleared without permits, fines not being handed down. I'll give you an example. Satellite images in November 2021 revealed almost 5,000 hectares across a Barclay cattle station had been burned and ploughed before the Pastoral Lands Board assessment for a permit was complete. The next month, the station was handed a permit but wasn't fined or sanctioned. This is despite the Pastoral Land Board recognising that the land had been cleared before the application was approved. Does the Northern Territory Government need to overhaul the regulator perhaps? I think uh, we work through each applicant and each issue one by one. And sometimes it's not going to be completely perfect, but uh, do we have mass issues here that require a federal worry absolutely not uh, say is that we do have regulators that do take their jobs very seriously and do work hand in hand with emerging industries like cotton to make sure that they are growing and developing the right way and the sustainable way Acting Chief Minister Nicole Madison speaking there with Adam Steer. The General Manager of Cotton Australia, Michael Murray, says the development of a cotton industry needs to be seen in the greater context of Territory Ag. I, I think people need to really understand from a Northern Territory perspective that um, if you compare the level of agricultural crop plant, agricultural development in the Territory compared to any of the other Eastern states, it's a tiny fraction. Um, you know, I believe that Territorians under their own rules have a right to develop their agricultural industry. Um, but having said that, it must be done in a sustainable way and surely we've learned a lot over the last a few centuries, so um, you know any new development should be right at the the best levels in terms of sustainability. Um, I guess to you, um, as uh, you know, as a huge proponent of the industry, um, how important is a cotton industry to the Northern Territory's economy and um, progress in moving forward? The cotton industry, generally speaking, in Australia, has been a profitable industry. It's an industry that, that despite the, the recent report put out by the Australian Institute, actually employs quite a few people and it does generate you know, a lot of economic activity. So wh- whether you're a uh, cotton ginner, so the gin being built in, in Catherine will probably employ four to, to seven full-time staff and around 25 staff during the, the ginning season. If you're a mechanic and you're um, you know, managing uh, you know, the modern machinery, there's the role for you. There's the, the fertiliser suppliers, the chemical suppliers, there's the farm labourers. We know that across our industry in general, on average, a cotton farm employs another five to seven people. 
Um, there's something like 1,500 cotton growers in Australia. Yeah, so so it's just a nonsense. The uh, the institute's figure of something like 400 people employed in the industry. You know, it's a minimum of ten thousand dollars, uh, ten thousand people plus a, a lot, lot more in in various support roles. So there's no doubt that um, cotton can play its part. Is it going to employ in the next couple of years thousands and thousands of people in the Northern Territory? No, it's not. But it is going to actually provide yeah you know, a lot of extra employment. And and don't forget that when we produce cotton. For every tonne of cotton fibre we produce, we produce around about a tonne, in fact, a little bit more of a, a tonne of cotton seed, which is a fantastic livestock feed and a really good fit for the um, the Northern Territory beef industry. So there's lots of advantages. Do you think that these types of allegations um, damage the cotton industry's social licence? Well, I, I, of course, if people uh, take them on face value, they're damaging the social licence. But I think people, yeah, even in that, what I've seen on the written article about the 730 report, there, there is no clear uh, evidence that anyone's actually broken any of the laws. Some things, as I understand, are either under investigation or have been uh, been finalised. So uh, I think people need to uh, to understand that. Right. So, I mean, would you just dispute that there was any illegal activity happening in the Northern Territory? I'm not in a position to either... Uh, confirm that there is or, 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 or dispute that there isn't. But but our expectation as an industry is people need to do the right thing. It's up to the government to set what that right thing is. It must be done in a sustainable manner. But when you think that more than 99% of the territory is undeveloped to plant-based agriculture, there must be room for some development. And, and when we look at some of those stories, you know, it also is worth keeping in mind that Someone may have cleared X number of hectares, but again, it's only a tiny proportion of the, of the total property. It is a matter of scale and relativity, but can't emphasise enough, it must be done in a sustainable way. Michael Murray is the General Manager of Cotton Australia, speaking with Roxanne Fitzgerald. If you'd like to get in touch on this topic, 0487 991057 is the text line. A few people getting in touch. Greg says, how can you clear trees so close to the river? Dumbfounded, especially after chemical runoff from cane farms into creeks, etc., in northern Queensland. And Nikki in Mataranka says the industry is not regulated. Look at all the cotton seeds left all over the road verges everywhere. Who is going to stop this plant spreading? In the early 2000s, there was a land clearing moratorium over Douglas Daly. Now it's a free for all says Nikki in Mataranka. Your thoughts are welcome as well. 0487 1057. It's 11 to 1 on the Country Hour. This is Casey Chambers and Shane Nicholson. It's The Quiet Life. Shane Nicholson and Casey Chambers, Quiet Life. G'day, I'm Emma. G'day, I'm Tara. And welcome to Mimi College and you're listening to Country Hour. Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon. It's 8 to 1. Farmers in the United States using John Deere machinery now have the right to repair their own farm equipment. It comes after the machinery manufacturer and the American Farm Bureau Federation signed a memorandum of understanding this week. It'll enable individuals to buy software tools that would allow them to take their equipment to a dealer of choice 
to fix the gear. Here in Australia, though, no such arrangements exist yet, and that's meant farmers are often left with software malfunctions that can leave very expensive machinery sitting idle in paddocks during busy times. Fiona Simpson is the president of the National Farmers Federation. She hopes the latest development in the US will pave the way for reform here in Australia. Look, we know that John Deere has announced that it signed an MOU with the American Farm Bureau, uh, which will guarantee farmers basically the right to repair John Deere equipment through accessing some of the software that is so important to actually work out what's wrong with the equipment and get it going again. Uh, At the moment, we only understand that it applies to John Deere and John Deere equipment, but that's certainly a massive step forward for those American farmers. Okay. Arrangements like this still don't exist in Australia? No, they don't. And it's very frustrating. It's something that the National Farmers Federation and our members in every state and a commodity group have been calling for now for a number of years. We really believe that it puts farmers at a complete disadvantage, particularly at peak times like harvest when things can go wrong with machinery and they can't even actually access a local technician to work out what's wrong with it, let alone fix it themselves because of the onerous agreements that they, the manufacturers have put in place. Now, this isn't a new issue. It's something the NFF has long lobbied for. The Productivity Commission held an inquiry into right to repair in 2021, but there has been no formal regulatory changes. So what is the state of play in Australia? The state of play here, 12 months on from the Productivity Commission releasing their report in December 2021, recommending wholesale changes and and, um, actually legislative changes has not changed at all. We've continued our conversations with the manufacturers and these conversations obviously are ongoing, but basically it's the same situation for farmers in Australia now as it was and that's when their machinery breaks down. They need need to go through the uh, appropriate technician as advised by their dealer or their manufacturer and not access local technicians themselves. Right. I'm keen to clarify whether you're keen to see government-led reform in this space or would you be keen to see a similar MOU struck between machinery manufacturers like John Deere and, say, organisations like the NFF here in Australia? Well, look, I think we really are in favour of government-led reform. This is a competition issue. This is seriously impacting farmers on farms in regional and rural communities every single day. It's creating a monopoly situation in some communities and it's anti-competitive. So we really think that to achieve the wholesale change that we need in the space, we do need an ask and we've written again to the government today to ask that they lead in this reform. Uh, If we do it like the US, then it's manufacturer by manufacturer manufacturer with voluntary agreements and voluntary codes and it really doesn't achieve the same outcome in as quick a time as if we had government change in the space. Failing that, of course, we'll continue to talk to to John Deere, to Case IH, to our major manufacturers here in Australia to see if we can also strike the same agreement as our American colleagues have done in the Farm Bureau. Fiona Simpson is the president of the National Farmers Federation, speaking with Jessica Hayes. So farmers in the US who use John Deere machinery now have the right to repair their own farm equipment. An MOU was signed this week and there may be change on the way to Australia, although it sounds like from the from what Fiona Simpson had to say, it may be a little while to come yet. Four to one on the Country Hour. <music> The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. 
Floodwaters are continuing to fall in Western Australia's Kimberley and the Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association is forming its recovery plan in the aftermath of the event. KPCA Business Development Officer Lauren Bell says there's a lot of work to do. The standout impact is obviously the damage to the road network. The Kimberleys only has one sealed road running through it and Hundreds of kilometres of that road have been damaged and most significantly the Fitzroy Bridge. Also hearing reports about damage to bridges around Willare. So without that road network, the east to west Kimberleys is totally cut off from each other, which obviously has significant impacts for the entire industry, not just those affected partialists because, you know, people's uh, access to their usual markets for their cattle, whether that's the live export port or the Kimberley Meatwork Company, is severely kind of compromised and likewise you know the ability to get freight and supplies into their properties is also compromised and it's not just about the highway you know there's thousands of kilometers of station access roads and internal roads that will also need significant repair. What sort of support are you seeking from government to help get those vital roads back up and running in time for sort of mustering and and other important times of the year on pastoral stations? We've had a great response from both the federal and state government recognising how important that road network is uh, and it sounds like they will be throwing a whole lot of resources at it. So I guess we'll just be calling on both the state and federal government to make sure that there is an alternative access route, whether that's just a low-level causeway crossing or something like that. And I think, you know, aside from roads, you know, we're also talking about thousands of kilometres of fence lines that have been impacted uh, and, you know, details are starting to emerge of different disaster funds that partialists will have access to uh, and we're just hoping to get more detail on that. We're obviously aware of some significant stock losses and the impact that can have immediately, but what are the long-term effects of those huge stock losses on the WA herd in the north? The herd size in the Kimberleys is about 700,000. We're talking stock losses in probably the tens of thousands, unfortunately. The majority of them were breeding herd. So the production losses, because of the diminishment of the breeding herd size, will kind of continue on for a number of years before people can rebuild their herds. And yeah, unfortunately, at this time of year is when people typically have their calves on the ground because there's normally better feed availability. So that's going to have an immediate impact for this year and next year's production capability. The loss of those calves will definitely be felt. And I think, you know, aside from just financial, the the loss of stock is very distressing um, and we're very aware that this flooding incident will have quite a significant mental or emotional toll on people. And yeah, we're just going to be mindful of that moving forward. Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association Business Development Officer Lauren Bell. She was speaking there with Steph Sinclair. And Western Australia's new Agriculture Minister has made her way to the Kimberley today to discuss the fallout from these historic Fitzroy River floods. And news just in that the WA government has activated the state emergency response for animal welfare situations. That gives the Department of Primary Industries powers in regards to euthanizing livestock where needed, but it sounds as though it will be some time before the full extent of the damage is understood. So we'll continue to watch as that story evolves. Heading off to the one o'clock news very shortly. After that, you'll hear more about the uh, Sun Cable going into voluntary administration and what the future of that project could potentially be.
It's one o'clock. Hi there, my name's Melissa Bruton and I'm a wildlife ecologist for the Australian Wildlife Conservancy. In my hands here we've got a cute little binos gecko which we caught at one of these sites and I'm just going to go and let him go. You're listening to the Country Hour. Yes, hello, it's five past one. Michelle Stanley with you on the Country Hour this afternoon. Have you ever had this experience? Going to the supermarket, getting your groceries, buying some melons from the NT, no doubt, only to have them explode. If this has happened to you, let me know. 0487 1057. It happened to someone pretty recently and before 1.30 you'll hear what might have caused it. There's a number of conditional factors, there's a number of age factors, how it's been handled, whether it's been bumped. Plenty of reasons it could have happened. You'll hear more about that story before half past one. Let's go to the weather first, though. Sally Cutter is with you from the Bureau of Meteorology. Hello. Good afternoon. Very little rainfall, but a couple of places um, got a few mils. Where have we Where have we seen falls in the last twenty four hours? Oh, the best spots were actually in central Australia. The Hermansburg had 27.4 millimetres. Schwartz Crescent on the Todd had 25. Border Creek, which is up Keep Riverway, 24.5. And Alice Springs Airport had 21 millimetres and the Telegraph, 12.6. So most of it fell south of the CBD grid in Alice and south in, in there. And there was a little bit of rise in the in the Todd, but it, it went up quickly and come to just a little way and then it's come down fair. It's great to coming down, but even out at Ormiston Gorge, we ended up with eight millimetres. So there, there was a little bit around. But the, there's a little gorge, bit on the way, isn't eight. there? Yes, certainly. We've had storms in the northeast Barkley earlier this morning and then the, they fired up along the, the Gulf Coast. But there's also a bit of a line of cloud that came out from those storms over the Barclay and they've now fired up over the Carpentaria district. So that those are sort of the early storms and then we're just starting to see the general afternoon convection fire with a few storms starting to to show up now. So there's right across the territory we could still see those showers and, and storms. There is a risk that we might see some heavy falls with some of them. So mainly around the Arnhem district and to maybe sort of the southern Tanami of north northwest Simpson districts, but the so just because they're, they're slowish moving, but they right across the territory we could see them. West coast is, might be, or the northwest coast might be a little bit tricky, but the steering around for that moves these storms around, we could still we could see some activity getting towards the coastal areas of the the west coast as well. And yeah, and Groot Islands fired too. Hector hasn't started quite yet, so Hector's bit delayed, but we, we could still see one up on the TV Islands later this afternoon. And you mentioned heavy falls. How heavy could they be? Oh, we, we're talking sort of maybe that's a 30 or 40 millimetres range. It's the, if you, you just, you have to be, because they are storms, you, you have to be underneath one to get the, well, a slow moving one to get the full extent of the rain. But hopefully they're going to be isolated enough that they don't to impact anybody directly. Okay, we'll have to wait and see how they um, come about. Um, the coastal waters this weekend, how are they looking? Is it worth getting out on the water? Uh, we've still got some the low-level westerlies. If you're on the west coast, so today we're looking at so 10, 15 knots, but reaching up to 20 knots around 
what and further south later this evening. And then tomorrow, 10 to 15 knots, reaching up to 20 knots offshore south of Daly River in, in the evening. And then that 15 to 20 knots continuing on Saturday. The, and then we've got on the north coast, we're looking about 10 knots, 10 to 15 knots tomorrow, 10 knots today. And around on the the west, so that was the Van Diemen Gulf north coast, we're looking winds getting up to... To 10 to 15 tomorrow over the weekend. Sorry, this is a drill. Not, not a drill. This, okay, the, there's just a fire, fire alarm, yeah, fire alarm the, going off in the background. Yeah, we'll, just, we'll just ignore it. The 15 to 20 knots on Saturday and then to increasing Easter Man and Greeters, those 15 to 20 knots on Friday. And then around in the Gulf of Carpentaria today, northwestly 10 to 15 knots and pretty much continuing into tomorrow and then picking up to 15 to 20 knots on Saturday. So things gradually picking up as we go into the weekend. Uh, and a bit of rainfall still on the cards for next week? Yeah, yeah. We've got the trough reforming across the Gregory and Carpentaria districts or just to the south. But So we could. that's going to be the main focus of the rain. So starting over the weekend... And then it possibly contracting a little bit to the more the Carpentaria, Northern Barclay early next week. The we are sort of just keeping an eye on whether a low forms in that trough, but right across to the northern parts of the NT, we could see those showers and storms to increase as we go into the weekend. Thank you very much for that, Sally. Uh, I hope you're all right with that fire alarm drill uh, from the Bureau of Meteorology. Not the first time we've had a fire alarm testing with the Bureau Cross either. It's 11 past one on the country hour. Know your emergency plan this summer. A third consecutive London. And rely on ABC to be with you. What can I do? Broadcasting up-to-the-minute critical information. We have issued an emergency warning. Online at ABC Emergency and on your local ABC radio. ABC Radio, reliable source for information. Stay safe, stay connected. I don't know what I'd do without the ABC. Download the ABC Listen app and stay connected with your local ABC radio station. The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Now, you would have heard the news that Sun Cable, the company behind a massive solar farm and power export project in the NT, has gone into voluntary administration. Sun Cable's backed by some pretty prominent investors, the likes of billionaires Andrew Forrest and Mike Cannon-Brooks. And the company referred to disagreements over funding and the future direction of the company in its announcement of the news yesterday. But despite this setback, experts in the renewable energy sector are still hopeful the project will go ahead. Dr Jeffrey James has worked in renewables for more than 20 years and has quite a lot of background in subsea cables in particular. He and some colleagues being one of the first groups to investigate exporting renewable energy from Australia via an undersea cable. Dr Jeffrey James, what did you make of the news that Sun Cable has gone into voluntary administration? Well, it it was unexpected, but thinking about it, uh, it's not uh, extremely surprising that that there'd be a corporate disagreements about such a such a project um the two two key investors are both quite strong-minded gentlemen and would have you know it's easy to imagine that they might not agree on everything how it's going to turn out i don't know i'm hoping and my colleagues uh are all hoping i think that it's not going to stop the company in its tracks but rather mean a change in direction uh, a new business model or or some such 
Uh, I think the fundamental idea is still sound. And of the many different proponents, I thought Sun Cable, I actually met them more than once, and I, I think they had the most well thought out commercial and phys and technical pathway that that I'd come across in this area. So like, I, I really hope they recover from that and 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 move on in some in some form. What is it about what you saw from Sun Cable that was positive? Oh, look, a number of aspects. I, I, I think using uh, uh, Singapore as a key offtake partner is probably wise. Uh, there's a, a very easily quantified output. There's a market there. You know what value your renewable power is going to have, or you can estimate that. They were also working with Indonesia. Now, I, I'm certainly not familiar with the details of that. There has been some press about the, um, the benefits that Indonesia would have and, and the support for their own industries. They had covered off that, and and I think that's a strength. Um, on the solar support side, you know they were working closely with uh, 5B, uh, which is has got an innovative way to roll out large-scale solar in rapid time at low cost. So they had thought carefully about how to scale up to the export quantities of electricity. I think they were planning between 10 and 20 gigawatts of solar capacity, storage, and uh, that feeding into a cable which would have been of the order of three gigawatts. So it would it would be enough to fill the cable most of the time and leave some excess. And they had also talked to the DKIS, the Darwin Catherine Interconnected System, about how to supply local load with um, excess solar that wasn't being exported. So it's they had a comprehensive view of the system and the ingredients, if you like, that are needed to make it all work together and uh, and manage some of the risks. So I, I guess it's the, the thoroughness of their approach that I thought would probably favour success if they if they can keep progressing as they have been. On the Country Hour, you're hearing from Dr. Jeff James, a renewable energy expert, quite familiar with the technology of this sort of sun, uh, subsea cable to transfer um, solar power from Australia to Asia, in particular talking about sun cable today. In the news of Sun Cable going into a voluntary administration, it's been said that there were some milestones missed. There are obviously a lot of challenges with, with such a huge project. What do you think those milestones could have been? And, and could it be the case that they were just biting off more than they could chew or, or being a little bit too hopeful in their planning? Uh well, you know, every innovative project I've been involved in has missed milestones or delayed milestones. So I, I, it's, it's not a huge surprise that, that some aspects proved harder or more complex um, or that their timeline was a bit more ambitious um, than they could actually execute. I, I, I think that in itself is not a is not huge news. It's 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 an innovative and difficult project. So I wouldn't hold that against them. Um, I'm sorry, I don't know and won't speculate about the particular milestones that, that are being referred to. Uh, but just I would comment that it's, it's, uh, it's a high-risk project. It's a highly innovative project, and as such, it's a high-risk project. And everybody knows that. Everybody would have gone into that with their eyes open, I'm sure. That's why I think, I uh, hope, a, a restructure and refocus is probably a, a, a likely outcome rather than giving up altogether. If there has been some analysis that shows, you know, commercially it won't work after all, then... I, I guess you have to just accept that. But they had really done their homework. I'm, I'd be surprised if some fundamental red flag came up at this point in the project. How important is it that this kind of project does eventuate? 
I think it's absolutely critical. So um, for context, there are multiple ways to use Australia's renewable energy for uh, strategic um, and export benefits. Hydrogen is a big subject today. That's uh, the uh, green hydrogen can be produced by renewable energy and water. But that's only one option. Another option is to have energy intensive industries in the areas of production. So minerals processing, data centers, uh, new industries could be created on the basis of massive renewable energy potential that Australia has. So in effect, that's exporting our energy in embodied form, embodied in products. And thirdly is the cable option. Now, uh, I guess I'm a technical guy. I, I really like the cable option because it's uh, physically direct, efficient, and has less conversion involved than something like hydrogen. The disadvantage is that it's a single creates a single point of failure. So I, I, I think that's probably the, the the key differentiator. Indeed, it's something that would really support the transformation of ASEAN grids. And you know, this is a this is a direction ASEAN nations are are, are taking. In any case, uh, it's a way of linking Australia into that progression and 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 creating a a new economy a new international economy so i i think it's a really important complement to the other things that we can do with our our renewable energy resources and and uh, i i'm sure it will go ahead i hope it's um it's not too greatly set back by by this incident dr jeff james thanks for your time on the country hour today i've really enjoyed it thank you for the opportunity to speak He's a renewable energy expert, having worked in the sector for more than 20 years at the start of discussions around using a subsea cable to export Australian renewable energy to Asia. He's currently the technical director of Pilbara Solar and still really hopeful the Sun Cable project will go ahead despite going into voluntary administration this week. And Acting Chief Minister Nicole Madison says the NT government has been assured that it will. We'll continue to be in communication, of course, with Sun Cable and, if required, uh, their administrators. But at the moment, we've been given confidence uh, with what Sun Cable are doing. Uh, we've had a good briefing with the Chief Executive yesterday. Uh, I've had a good briefing from our Major Projects Commissioner on how they are looking to go forward. And Sun Cable have given us assurances that they're very confident about this process, setting them up very well for the future and for delivery of this significant project. Uh, as we spoke about yesterday, we have not put grants into this project. However, we do give it significant support in, in how we work with it, with our public servants, whether they're in the major projects team or whether they are, uh, for example, doing assessments that might come across their desk, that type of thing. Acting Chief Minister Nicole Manison, Professor Renata Egan is an energy expert from the University of New South Wales and she's confident that Sun Cable will be able to overcome its voluntary administration. Yeah, I'm reasonably confident. Uh, it's, they've gone into voluntary administration. Um, I understand that they're uh, operating through the, that administration process and that they're looking for to restructure and find new investors. Is there any hardware already in place or is it still basically in the planning stages? Uh, they, my understanding is that they have a test facility on site, so they're where they're testing different components of the, uh, the technologies that they would deploy. So there is some, there's some research and development going on, plus there's research and development into the cabling technologies and um, you know, negotiations around contracts. So in terms of the projects in play around Australia at the moment, how significant was this one? 
Oh, it was a very, it's a big ambitious project. Uh, it's probably the biggest. Then beyond that, then there's the Australian Renewable Energy Hub, which is a hydrogen export uh, activity where they plan to power the, the creation of hydrogen for export to Southeast Asia uh, using solar and wind power. So that would be the next biggest project. And that would, that's run by BP. Uh, um, and I think that Fortescue Future Industries have an interest in that as well. Plus, there's projects by Rio Tinto and BHP. There's some, there are some other you know, gigawatt projects in the pipeline, but the Sun Cable one at 30 gigawatts was the largest. Yeah, so there's this massive push towards green energy now. How does this reflect on the ability of Australia to continue to move into green energy? I think we still we've still got a lot of work to do uh, to reach the kind of goals that we ambitious goals that we have. Uh, there, I I see this as a small setback, but not a serious one. Uh, there, there, I think there's an alignment of shareholders that needs to be. Uh, discussed and readjusted uh, with regard to timing and uh, financing of this project. And presumably they're still negotiating contracts and agreements uh, for the offtake of the energy that they produce. So all of these things need to line up and any big ambitious project like this will take some time to find the right partners and the right funding. That's Professor Renata Egan from the University of New South Wales. She was speaking with Joe Bryan about Sun Cable going into voluntary administration. You can read more about that story on the ABC News website. It's 23 past one. You're listening to the Country Hour. And this is Chris Matthews from the Kimberley. It's called Little Bit Long Way. That's Chris Matthews. It's a Little Bit Long Way. Lily Rose Carey, I'm 12, and I live on Kalala Station, and you're listening to The Country Hour. It's 26 past one. Did you know watermelons can explode? A Facebook post recently went viral where a shopper described hearing a loud bang in their kitchen. They walked in to see watermelon splattered everywhere. But what causes that kind of event? Melons Australia Executive Officer Jonathan Davey says there are many reasons a melon might explode. There's not really one specific factor that we can that we could put our finger on. There's a number of conditional factors, there's a number of age factors, how it's been handled, whether it's been bumped, uh, whether it's gone from hot to cold fridges to out into out into warmer temperatures there's a range of different factors as to why why it could happen uh, without knowing the the specific details of the the most recent one i'm i'm not sure and we're not able to really pinpoint what it could have been due to obviously speculating here but is overripeness a potential as well look it it can be it's normally it's normally a combination of factors so just simply being overripe probably isn't the be all and end all um, watermelon obviously requires temperatures within the 30 to 35 degree range to, to actually develop its ripeness. We've also seen significant levels of flooding and, and rain levels over the last few months in the lead up to summer that has also created some challenges for growers in terms of conditions and, and what the melons actually look like. So. There's, there's a number of different elements that would go into it and there's no real one 
factor that we can pinpoint in this case. Are you as a peak body investigating why this happened or putting any research into future quality of the product so this doesn't happen again? Oh, look, I, we obviously know that it's been uh, been dealt with through the consumer and, and Woolworths. Um, there's not really a, a role for us to play. We are we are looking at how we take this out of the out of the picture into the future. So, um, as as the industry peak body, we're we're leading and working collaboratively with a with a research group around how do we make sure the quality and the consistency of melons into the future remains at a really high level, so that we're providing the best possible quality for for Australian consumers. That that project has about another 12 months to run and it's it's initially looking at trying to identify what the consumer wants and how do we make sure that we can then reverse engineer the, the practices to make sure that we are producing a really consistent high quality melon across the board. So there's some really exciting times ahead. Melons Australia Executive Officer Jonathan Davey, who was speaking there with Jane McNaughton about exploding watermelons. That's it from the Country Hour this afternoon. Before I let you go, though, a text in from Al in Humpty Doo regarding our earlier story on cotton and land clearing. He says, I love listening to all the people talking about the cotton industry in the Northern Territory. I think I was being facetious there. He says, an industry they obviously know nothing about along with their comments. Thanks for getting in touch with me today. I'll catch you tomorrow from 12.30.